sermon text today is going to be just the two verses in the middle of the chapter, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And again, this is the passage that Matthew and John both quote uh, in their gospel accounts of the triumphal entry. And uh, I want you to notice that question in Matthew that everyone was asking when we got to the end. They were asking, who is this? The point of this passage is to teach us uh, who this king is who is coming into Jerusalem that day. And this is the answer that Zechariah gives. Before we read this word together, please join me. We'll go to the Lord in prayer and seek his blessing upon its reading and its study today. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus. We pray that you would help us to know more of him. We pray that you would help us to worship you truly. Thank you for giving us your son, for sending him uh, to be the king of your people, to be our king and our Lord and our Savior. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive him and eyes to see him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here now, Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You know, one of the puzzles uh, that we encounter as we read the New Testament is uh, what scholars like to call the messianic secret. You've seen it. Uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and immediately we're told that Jesus commands the disciples not to tell anyone what they know about him. Jesus heals lepers. He opens blind eyes. Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. And then he warns everyone to be silent about the wonderful things that he's done for them. All over the Gospels, we see Jesus reluctant to let people know who he is and why he has come into the world. And so this idea of a, a messianic secret, it's, it's always something of a scholarly hot topic. If you go to seminary, I guarantee you some, uh, some professor will make you write a paper or a reflection or some sort of interaction on this idea of the so-called messianic secret. But it's really not a new problem. In fact, as we read John's gospel in John chapter 7, you may remember there that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him yet, and they didn't understand his approach to ministry. One of the things they suggested, they said, why don't you go to Judea so that your disciples can see what you're doing, they said. They said, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And if you do these things, show yourself to the world. That's what they thought he ought to do. He ought to show himself to the world, but Jesus didn't show himself to the world. Over and over again, he healed, and, and he delivered, and he proclaimed the gospel, and he didn't let people know who he was. And he did it so that he could reveal his kingship in his own terms. He did it so that his role in God's kingdom wouldn't be obscured by the public longing for some miracle worker, for some political savior. 
Jesus kept his kingship a secret so that at the right moment, in the right way, he could reveal who he really was. In fact, Jesus kept his kingship a secret right up until the moment that he came into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. That's what this is. This is a revelation. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. Isn't that what Zechariah says? Behold, your king is coming. That is, look, pay attention. Here he is. Finally, he's revealed. He's been in obscurity. He's been ministering and preaching for so long, and he's been keeping other people from knowing him quite yet. But now he's here. Now we see him. Now the king is revealed. So rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, he says, behold, your king is coming to you. You know, sometimes we get uh, Palm Sunday wrong. Sometimes we focus on the donkey. Sometimes we focus on the joy of the people, and we focus on the palm branches. And I saw at least one church uh, in the news this week that was offering a, a drive through where you could go and you could pick up your little Palm Cross, and you can celebrate Palm Sunday in that way. Sometimes we focus on all the wrong things. We focus on the hard-hearted priests who take these cries of Hosanna and they turn them into a demand for crucifixion. But on Palm Sunday, the focus really ought to be on Jesus. Actually, every Sunday, the focus ought to be on Jesus. But on Palm Sunday especially, because he's the reason for all the rejoicing. He's the reason for the palm branches and the shouts and the jubilation. And so with Zechariah, our aim today is very simple. It is to behold our king, simply to understand more of who Jesus is, what he came to do. We're, we're going today, I hope, to see Jesus as he chooses to reveal himself. We're going to see it through the lens of Zechariah. So what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about this king in Zechariah's prophecy? Well, first, I think that Zechariah is showing us the king who is righteous. That's our first point. Jesus is the king who is righteous. Now, in Matthew's gospel, his focus is really on the humility of Christ. And so you may notice that he skips over the fourth line of verse 9. He gets right to the donkey, right to the humility part. But he skips over verse, uh, verse 9 uh, in the middle there. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. That's where Zechariah begins his picture of Israel's king. He starts with righteousness. And in this passage, I think that implies at least two things. For one, it implies that Jesus is righteous in his rule, in his rule. He is a king, after all. That's what kings do. They rule things. Uh, they make decrees. They establish laws. They, they establish justice in the land. And, and kings are the ones who rule over things. And you know from the history books uh, how bad it can go for nations when kings get this primary responsibility wrong. How many despots and tyrants uh, from history can you think of who treated their own people as little more than slaves? How many tyrants can you think of who lived in largesse while the masses starved in the streets? It can go very wrong when you have a king who's not righteous. It seems to be the way that most kings and most leaders go. You remember uh, George Orwell's novel, Animal Farm. You remember the way the pigs begin with that virtuous saying, all animals are equal, they said. 
But then they began to rise in status and in authority, and it changed a little bit. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, they began to say. And that's how it goes. That is the corrupting influence of power. But here comes a king who is different, says Zechariah. Here comes a king who is not drunk on the importance of his authority. He's the king we can trust to do what is right and what is good. He's the king who doesn't look out for himself, but always looks out for his people. And that means that his rules are not burdensome. It means that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. It means that it's a gracious thing to obey our King Jesus. He's the one we can trust. He is righteous in his rule. But I think it also means that Jesus is righteous in his representation. Don't forget, this is the other thing that kings are supposed to do. They rule over things, but they're also a representative. And so when the prince is at war, the people are at war. When the king is at peace, the people are at peace. And our fortunes and our future rise and fall with the character of our king because he's our representative. It's hard for us to think because our, our nation isn't ruled by a king, but this is really the way that it's always been throughout human history. We have representatives who make decisions and who have status on our behalf. Think about Romans chapter 5. Paul said that sin came into the world through one man. Why? Well, because Adam was our representative. In a sense, Adam was like our first king. Adam sinned, and as our representative, we sinned in Adam. And then every leader, every earthly leader since Adam, has perpetuated this cycle of sin and rebellion and uncleanness before the Lord. And that means that humanity is a people at war. We're not primarily at war with, with one another, not really. We're not at, at war with, with world systems and economies and authorities and powers. We're not even at war with ourselves. We're at war with God. We are enemies of God's righteousness. Our sin has made us enemies of God and his holiness. And so what do we need but a new representative? Sorry about that. I'm back, I think. We need a king. Excuse me, just a moment. Technical difficulties. Uh, we need a king who can stand in the place of his subjects and reconcile us to the God who demands perfection. And that's what we find in Jesus. This is what uh, sets our leader, our king, apart from every prince who's ever been born upon the earth, actually. This is what, uh, what sets him apart. You know, typically in the Old Testament, when this word righteous is applied to human beings, uh, it's used really as a comparison at best. We're told all the way back in Genesis that Noah was righteous, but he was righteous in his generation. We're told that the friends of Job stopped answering him because they saw that he was righteous in his own eyes. We find that Tamar in Genesis 38 reveals that she's pregnant by her father-in-law who refused to marry off his only remaining son so that she could be provided for. And then Judah confesses, she is more righteous than I. Not to take away from, from Tamar's virtue, but Judah isn't exactly setting the bar very high there in Genesis. This is the best that we can hope for. The best that we can achieve in this life and by our own power is some sort of uh, human comparative righteousness. 
by our own strength, we might be able to be more righteous than someone else, but we're only more righteous in the sense that mud has more water in it than dirt. And even if you dilute the filth, it doesn't make it clean. It doesn't mean that it's something you want to drink on a hot day. And so when the Bible speaks of righteousness in absolute terms, without qualification, without comparison, the message is clear. Job chapter 15, verse 4 says, What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? You see, among humanity, there is no such thing as absolute righteousness. There is no purity. There's no uprightness of heart. There is none born of women who can claim perfection. None except for our king. That's the defining characteristic of Christ. He is righteous beyond comparison. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is utterly, perfectly, unqualified righteous. And that means that our king is everything that God requires. He is everything that we lack. He is everything that we have lost through our fall into sin. Christ came as the only righteous king. He came as the personal embodiment of God's moral perfection. And so this is the king that we need. It's the king that we find in Jesus. He's the king who's righteous. Because he's righteous, Secondly, Jesus is the king who has salvation. Jesus is the king who has salvation. Behold, Zechariah says, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Now, this is a truth that's so foundational to our faith that it's, it's hard to understand why Matthew would leave this out. But in the Hebrew, really, the, the grammar makes this line something that is uh, more applicable to Easter morning than it is to Palm Sunday. That's because this phrase, it's, it's really just one word, having salvation, it's actually passive in the Old Testament. This king has salvation in the sense that he has received it. God has delivered him. And so if you have the NIV in front of you, you'll see that it says uh, there that he comes righteous and victorious. The New American Standard Version uh, says that he is endowed with salvation. He has received it. He has received salvation. So that means that, that Zechariah is not talking primarily about a righteousness or about a salvation that this king has to give to others, although that's implied. It's an important part of what he's talking about, and it's an implication of the language, but, but it's secondary, really, to what Zechariah is talking about. Zechariah is talking about the salvation that the king has experienced himself. Zechariah is picturing for us a king who is returning from battle triumphant. God in his power has made him victorious over his enemies. God's power has delivered him from death. And so he's coming in now as the conquering king, the triumphant king, the one who's coming to rule on a throne without, without threat and without rival, without warfare. It's always puzzled me the way that we know the story of of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. That's what we call it. And in your Bibles, if you have a heading there, that's probably what it says, the triumphal entry. And maybe it seems triumphal to us because we know the people rejoicing and we see them spreading their cloaks the way they would to welcome a hero. Maybe it seems 
triumphant because we know the end of the story. We know what's about to happen. We know how Jesus is coming to crush the serpent's head, how he is coming to lay death itself in the grave. But I think it would help us to understand Palm Sunday. It would help us to understand Zechariah, certainly, if we acknowledge that this entry into Jerusalem was not a victory parade. At least not yet. This was the beginning of the Lamb of God being led to the slaughter. Despite all the joy and the jubilation of the people, Jesus knew it. He didn't have any illusions about what was about to happen to him in Jerusalem. On the same day, the very moment that Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Matthew chapter 16 tells us that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer. Yes, he's going to suffer, and he'll be raised, and the resurrection is coming, and it's, it's on the horizon. Deliverance is on its way, but it isn't here yet, not in the triumphal entry. There is still a night of anguish in the garden to go. There is still betrayal and abandonment to be endured. There is still a cross and nails and a crown of thorns. There's still the irony that Jesus came into Jerusalem as a king, and the only one who acknowledged his kingship is the Gentile ruler who handed him over to be killed. Pilate put that sign up above his head for all of the passersby to see. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And nobody believed it. They walked by and they wagged their heads and, and they counted him cursed. And there was nobody to defend him against his false accusers. There was no one to reach out and to take him down from the cross before his, his duty was accomplished. And in fact, Jesus doesn't even flex his own divine muscle and save himself from the cross. Instead, he waited. He submitted. He entrusted himself to God while doing justly. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's why Jesus came into Jerusalem. He came to offer prayers and supplication, to offer tears and crying. He came in to be rejected and to suffer and to die. Jesus came into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey so that he could be conquered in our place, so that his flesh would be given over to death. And through his suffering, he came to be delivered in our place. Jesus came to receive salvation for us. He came to endure a death that he didn't deserve in order that he could be raised from a grave that couldn't hold him. And that's good news for us. That's the implication here. In fact, the Bible consistently teaches us that the only way we can be saved is by participating in the salvation that Jesus has received for us. Hebrews 5, verse 7, we just read it, tells us that Christ offered cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. You keep reading in that chapter, verse 9 goes on and says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus was saved in order that he could save us. That's how it happens. And so in Philippians chapter 3, Paul rejoices that he has suffered the loss of all things. Why would he rejoice over that? Well, this is what he says. I rejoice that I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in 
him, that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, that I may become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Friends, here is the answer for our doubting faith. This is the doctrine that's able to give us assurance of salvation, because every time we wonder if we have done enough, or we have worked enough, or we have believed enough to win God's favor, the Bible shows us the king who has received salvation in our place. He's the one who has triumphed over sin. He's the one who is delivered from death, and in him, when we are united to him, we have salvation full and finished. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about showing us the king who came to be delivered from death so that he could share salvation with those who trust in him. It's about seeing the king who has salvation. Thirdly, I think Zechariah is showing us the king who is humble. He's showing us the king who is righteous and the king who has salvation. Now he shows us the king who is humble. This is the image that captivated the gospel writers. It is this, this unexpected abasement of the king of kings. Behold, Zechariah writes, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, we have a saying in our culture. The saying goes, dress for the job that you want. And so that means uh, that if you're going to interview for some executive position at a large corporation, you, you don't walk in in a polo shirts and cargo shorts with your flip-flops on. Uh, that's the time where you put on the power suit. That's the day where you wear the tailored shirts with the cufflinks that are monogrammed. That's the day that you exude power and influence. That's the day that you dress like somebody who ought to be taken seriously. And the same, in a sense, goes for what we drive. Well, in these days, if you wanted to make an impression, if you wanted to be received as a king, riding a donkey was laughable. There was a time, actually, in, in Israel's history where a donkey was a big thing. Judges chapter 12, rich people rode on the backs of donkeys, but that was a long time ago. In fact, it was before the days of Solomon when he began to import stallions from Egypt. It was uh, before the days of the alliances of of the divided kingdoms, and then came the exile, then came the influence of Babylon and Persia and, and the Greeks, and then came the Romans with their centurions and their cavalry. And what good was a donkey compared to all that? And yet the Gospels record that Jesus purposely sought out a donkey. Not just a donkey, but a colt, a young donkey. One that was so untested that it still had to be accompanied by its mother. Jesus chose the meekest mount that he could find because he was revealing himself as the king who is humble. He's the king who's not afraid to identify with the lowly. He's not afraid to be a part of the bottom rung. He's willing to, to fellowship with the hurt and the suffering and the downtrodden. He's willing to be identified with the underdog rather than with the conqueror. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. He's the one who's not ashamed to associate with you. He's the one who eats and drinks and fellowships with sinners and tax collectors. He's the kind of king who's not afraid to call you friend and to listen to your cries and your prayers. 
He's the kind of king who warned his people that if the world hated him, they would hate us as well. And even if we're hated, he still calls us his. He still claims us. Even if the world calls us fundamentalist and, and anti-intellectual and puritanical and, and stick-in-the-mud conservative Christian, he still says that we're his own. That's the kind of king that he is. He's humble enough to associate with the lowly. He's also humble enough to share our afflictions. Now, don't forget that the gospel writers recorded their accounts of the triumphal entry after the fact. They wrote it down after they already knew the truth of who Jesus was and why he had come into the world, and, and after they had put all of the pieces together. In John's gospel, chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 12, uh, he also quotes Zechariah 9. He quotes it immediately after he explains the donkey and the shouting crowds, and then he says this, Jesus' disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So when did they make the connection between Jesus and Zechariah? Well, not until after Jesus had been glorified. Not until uh, he returned to the Father from whom he had come. Not until he sat down at the right hand of the power on high to make intercession for the saints. And so can you imagine the impression that it made on them when they began to connect the dots? When all the pieces began to, to come together, can you imagine that aha moment when they realized that Jesus didn't just ride on this donkey as a leader of men? He rode on this donkey as the Lord of heaven. Can you imagine the moment they realized that the miracle about the donkey wasn't that Jesus knew where it was tied up? That's what we pay attention to again. Wow, how wonderful that Jesus knows that this donkey is there and, and his disciples can go and get it. And we puzzle over that. The real miracle is that Jesus was the one who came down and took on a body that could be carried by a donkey. Jesus is the one who showed up in space and time and allowed humanity to see him and to sing his praises. You see, if you really think about it, humility doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what was being revealed in Jesus' kingship here. Jesus is the king who's humble enough to associate with the lowly, yes, but Jesus is also willing to experience our afflictions. He's the God who was willing to become incarnate. He was willing to enter our experience. He was willing to, to bind himself to a body that could be seen and felt and carried and crushed. The real miracle of of the entry into Jerusalem on the donkey is the fact that the son emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it until Jesus had been uh, glorified, not until he returned to the Father and return to the glory that he had before the world existed. They didn't understand it, but you do. You understand that Jesus is the king who's willing to associate with the lowly, the king who is, who is humble enough to share our humanity. He's the king who's willing to taste our affliction and our suffering. Jesus is the king who's humble. And finally, Zechariah is showing us in verse 10 that Jesus is the king who speaks peace. Jesus is the king 
who speaks peace. This really, I think, is Zechariah's main point. Everything has been pointing in this direction. In fact, if you take the time to read the rest of Zechariah chapter 9 today, you're going to see that. You're going to see that verses 9 and 10 are the outliers. You're going to see that uh, in verses 1 through 8, there's a detail of the destruction of all the nations around Jerusalem, beginning at the north and coming down. Beginning up in, uh, in, uh, in Syria and then stretching down to Tyre and Sidon, right up to the borders of Jewish territory. And then beginning in verse 11, God proclaims uh, victory and conquest in another direction. He says that he's going to set his people, in verse 13, he's going to set Jerusalem and Ephraim, Judah, against the people of the Greeks. And then he's going to march before them in the whirlwinds of the south. You see that there's conquest in the north and whirlwinds in the south, and both of them are encroaching, and all of it is warfare, and all of it is progress, and all of it is national conquest, but not in these verses. In verses 9 and 10, the king of Jerusalem comes in peace. He's the one who stills the warfare of the nations. He speaks peace to the peoples, to the goyim, to those who are around Israel. And his reign stretches from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the Jewish way of saying he's king over everything. All that the eye can see, all that the mind can imagine, it's all been subjected to him. And so Jesus rides in, and he doesn't come in on the flashing white charger of war. Because verse 10 tells us that the war horse is going to be cut off. There won't be a need for war anymore. The swords will be beat into plowshares. This is this great eschatological vision that all the prophets have of the end time peace that is still to come. Jesus comes in giving a foretaste of that. He doesn't come in on the war horse. He comes in on the humble donkey. He comes riding into his kingdom in peace. He comes with a gospel to proclaim. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That's the rule of God's kingdom. It's not like other religions that, that advance by, uh, by overpowering our enemies. Jesus doesn't set his church on a jihad. The church doesn't advance like earthly kingdoms do. The church doesn't gain power by crushing our enemies. The church advances through proclamation, through the preaching of the gospel. The church advances through deeds of love and mercy. The church advances through the faithful witness of men and women who are willing to lay down their lives for the Prince of Peace. So Jesus' kingdom comes in a declaration. Reconciliation with God and from man to man. This is what we find in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes that Christ, he himself, is our peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus is the king who speaks peace. He speaks it to his people, and through his people, he speaks it to a warring, striving world. You know, just like the salvation that Zechariah envisioned earlier. This peace wasn't quite true yet of Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. Not yet. We uh, have received a kernel of it. We received the beginnings. We've received the first fruits, the guarantee of a greater harvest. We have received peace with God through Jesus' death and, and reconciliation, but we're still waiting. 
We're waiting for the day when Christ will come back, when all the nations will be subdued. We're still waiting for that last enemy, death, to be conquered. We're waiting for death and sin and dying to be no more. And that really is what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about reminding us that we're still waiting for the day when Christ will return in triumph. We wait for the day that he'll return on the clouds and every eye will see him. We wait for the day that he will gather his little lambs like a shepherd and he will lead them for a tearless eternity. Friends, this Easter season, I want to encourage you not to sell your faith short. I know that this is a, a big thing, and here we are all sitting in our homes and wondering when we can go outside, and even just a little bit of normalcy would be nice, but the promise of the gospel isn't a little bit of normalcy. The promise of the gospel isn't just to make this life a little bit more tolerable, a little bit more joy, enjoyable, a little bit more beautiful. Don't imagine that Christianity is just about making this life a little bit bit better. Don't sell yourself short for some lesser peace. When Jesus revealed his kingdom, he showed us an eternal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. He revealed a kingdom over all the world where righteousness dwells, where the nations live in peace with God. He entered into Jerusalem in a way that no other king would, because he was showing us a kingdom unlike anything the world had ever seen. That's the point of the triumphal entry. It's not about the branches. It's not about the donkey or the priests. It's about Jesus. It's about showing us the King of Kings. It's about showing us the Prince of Peace. It's about teaching us that Jesus is the King who brings peace to God's people. I pray that he gives us hearts to see him as he is and as he's revealed himself, that we would worship the King of Kings who gives peace to God's people. To join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for this vision of Christ. We thank you that you show him to us and that he reveals himself to the world in the gospel. We pray that we, your people, would be so enamored with Christ that we would gladly, joyfully speak of him to those around us. We pray that you would help us to encourage one another with a vision of Christ and with the peace that is yet to come. We pray that we would not look to, to lesser promises and to lesser peace, but set our hearts on those things that are above and those promises that you've given us in him. Until that day when we see them all fulfilled in Christ Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. And now.